Father, we're grateful to gather together this morning as the church just to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ to worship you, to be reminded of who we are. I love that song we just sang, I am who you say I am. Lord, to to come underneath your word and to uh, hear what you have to say for us, Lord, we're just grateful to to be here and we thank you. And Lord, we just wanna pray for our moms. We're so grateful for the moms that are here, Lord, and a part of this church and and how faithful they are in in laboring every day to, to raise their children. Lord, what a huge ministry and responsibility and privilege you have given them. And Lord, I just pray that you would give them strength and endurance and love and affection for their kids. Lord, I pray that you would allow them to give themselves grace when they feel like that they're not the mom that they should be or you know, they look at other moms and compare themselves. Lord, I just pray that you would encourage the moms in a room that, you are the, that they are the exact mom that you want for their children. And Lord, help them just to be encouraged. And Lord, we just pray for those in the room, Lord, too, that uh, today is a tough day. Uh, Lord, my wife and I know what it's like to, to be unsure if we'd be able to ever have children biologically, Lord. Infertility can be just such a, a heavy burden or for those, Lord, where they've lost a mom, or Lord, the mom that they did have was not the one they deserved, or whatever it is, Lord, I just pray that today you'd give them a comfort, and that, Lord, that, uh, that desire they have to be a mom, or that sorrow they feel from their experience, Lord, is, uh, Lord, a part of the emotion that you gave them. They're not wrong for feeling that. So, Lord, I pray that today they'd be comforted that, Lord, as a church, we'd love them well, and that, Lord, you give them extra grace uh, this morning. Lord, we pray that as we jump into our text this morning, that you would be with us, that your spirit would guide us and help us to understand what your word has to say. And Father, here's what I pray, that, Lord, in our time together this morning, as we meet, as we sing, as we pray and we read from your scriptures, that, Lord, this would be a fully satisfying meal that would give sustenance to our faith and satisfaction to our souls. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, which is the third gospel in the Bible, third book in the New Testament, and uh, we'll read from that. I'm going to be in chapter 14, so if you get it out, if you have a Bible. Um, if you don't own a Bible, or you, uh, we have some in the lobby, so you feel free to grab one and keep it. it it's yours. Um, or you can use your phone if you want. You can get your phone out and go to Luke 14. We'll also have it on the screen behind me when we pray uh, in, in just a second. Uh, but you know, the other day I was reading an interesting article Uh, in Business Insider about the unprecedented success of Chick-fil-A. All right, see, Chick-fil-A, I want you to get this, generates more revenue per location than any other fast food chain in the nation, despite being closed one day a week. All right, so an average Chick-fil-A brings in $4.4 million per store per year. All right, number two on that list, 
brings in $2.7 million per store per year. Can you guess who that is? No, Whataburger. Whataburger, down south. I mean, if you haven't been down south, you'll find them down there in Texas and other places like that, right? I, that was surprised to hear that too, right? But so Chick-fil-A is like far out. I mean, they are way beyond their competition when it comes to per store per year revenue. All right, despite only being open six days a week, every other fast food chain opens every single day of the year, and they have more locations. So Chick-fil-A generates more annual revenue than dozens of other chains that have more than twice as many locations as them, including KFC, KFC, Pizza Hut, Domino's, Arby's, and, and all of them are open seven days a week. So the financial success of Chick-fil-A is amazing despite the fact that they close on Sundays. And many figure, man, if they would just open on Sundays, uh, how much more revenue would they bring in? If you're like me, I I feel like the day that I most crave Chick-fil-A is Sunday. (laughs) But see, the founder of Chick-fil-A, Truett Cathy, he's famous for saying this, saying that our decision to close on Sunday was our way of honoring God and of directing our attention to things that mattered more than our business. See, we all prioritize things we value. So Truett Cathy is saying that there is something that he and his company values more than money or revenue. Right? We, we value giving our employees a day off so they can worship or whatever they want to do on that day off. We, we value that. We, so because of that, we've prioritized that over our revenue numbers. And, and clearly, it's, it's not hurting them. But we all prioritize what we value. We do it all day, every day, whether you're aware of it or not, right? If your alarm goes off in the morning, in that moment, you are going to prioritize what you value, all right? So maybe that's exercising. So you get a bed and exercise. Maybe that's spending some time with the Lord in your Bible, all right? So you'll prioritize that. Maybe it's, man, and this, this morning, I'm going to prioritize some sleep because I value sleep more, so I'm going to hit the snooze button. But no matter what you decided, you prioritized what you valued in that very moment. Uh, if you worked downtown in the city, and I called you up, I said, hey, hey, you know what, we haven't caught up in a while, let's, let's get lunch, I'll come down to the city, let's get lunch. You might say to me, Alan, man, God, man, I'm slammed this week with work, I just don't think I can carve out the time, let's find another time to do it. But if I called you up and said, hey man, here's the deal, I got some tickets to the Nets afternoon game at noon, seats right over the dugout, it's going to be a gorgeous day outside, come on, let's go, tickets are free, right, you might go, all right, uh, well, okay, I'll stay late at work tonight and I'll get some things done and maybe I'll move some meetings tomorrow and we'll figure it out, but yeah, I'm going to go to the Nats game with you, right, because in that moment you prioritized what you valued, even to the point that you're willing to affect different parts of your day or even other people so that you can have that priority. So if you want a fun exercise to do in your life, just just for fun, to determine what you truly value, spend some time thinking about the different decisions you made throughout your day and ask yourself why you made those decisions. Why did you say yes or why did you say no to whatever it was? And you'll quickly discover who or what you value more and who or what you don't value as much because we prioritize what we value. Chick-fil-A is not caved into the potential revenue of opening on Sundays, which I think would be big, because 
they actually value being closed on Sundays more. Their consistency in this area has proved that that's a value. And the reason why I bring this up is because Jesus talks about this in a conversation that he is going to have uh, over dinner with some Jewish leaders. And Jesus was revealing the fact that although we might say we value the things of God, our priorities might point to a different reality. So I want to read this parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 14. This is going to be in verses 15 to 24. And so parables are like these fictional stories that are designed to teach a lesson or to make a point. And Jesus taught using parables all of the time. And so what's going on in Luke 14 is Jesus is having dinner with some Jewish leaders, all right, with some leading Pharisees of the day. All right, so they're talking over dinner, and in the midst of this dinner, one of the Pharisees kind of exclaims out loud for all to hear, you know, blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, right? He, he says this pious, uh, religiously appropriate, I guess, saying for all to hear. And Jesus had some thoughts about what he said, and so Jesus tells a parable. So let's read this. Uh, uh, Luke 14, 15 to 24. Here's what it says. When one of those who reclined at the table with uh, Jesus heard these things, uh, Jesus said to him, or I'm sorry, this Pharisee said for all to hear, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to the man, so here's our parable, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I got to go see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, five pairs of oxen, and I need to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, therefore I can't come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry, and he said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and the blind and the lame." And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this parable with three different lenses, okay? Um, The first lens I want to look at it with was asking the question, okay, what was Jesus trying to teach these Pharisees? In this context of the text, what was Jesus trying to communicate? The second way I want to look at it is then, okay, how do we then apply what Jesus was trying to teach in this context to our current context in the age of the church? And then lastly, I want to look at it, zooming kind of all the way in, And just really ask the question, okay, but what does this mean for Grace Hill Church? Our context here at Grace Hill. So first, let's just start with what was Jesus trying to teach these religious leaders? Okay, this parable 
by Jesus was sparked by this Pharisee kind of blurting out for all to hear, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, this is significant, all right, what this guy says. We read earlier from Isaiah 25, okay, and what we read about that gorgeous passage was about the messianic banquet that's prophesied about in the Bible, okay? And this banquet is something that the Jews were looking forward to. They were waiting for the day when when God would send the Messiah who would defeat God's enemies and establish God's kingdom. And the way that the scriptures describe the kingdom of God is like a great feast, a great banquet. I mean, it's a beautiful description. One of eating rich food full of marrow, right? That's meat. And and well-aged, bold wine. Like, I love the descriptions that we hear in Isaiah 25. And this is a place where there are no more tears. And this is a place where there is no death. And so Isaiah 25, 4 to 6, one of my favorite passages in Scripture. And this Pharisee is reclining at the table with Jesus, making references to this banquet that they were waiting for, saying, blessed is the one who's going to be there that Isaiah was prophesying about. But here's the thing. The moment is full of irony. The very Messiah, the one whom God had sent, yes, to establish God's kingdom, to cook up this banquet, the one whom they were waiting for, who would bring the kingdom of God, was reclining at the table with them. And they all rejected him. And so what Jesus does is he launches into this parable. Oh, blessed is the one who will be at this banquet. Let me talk to you about this banquet. And of course, this story is about a banquet. And immediately, what we need to know as the reader of this text. What we need to know is that although this is a parable, although this is a made-up story with fictional details, oh, it is definitely a true story. A master had prepared a banquet, and finally the banquet was ready. The, The food was on the table, the wine was poured into the glasses, the Messiah had arrived, it was time. But see, we talked about the fact that we prioritize what we value. And when all of the invited guests had heard that it was time for the banquet to begin, some more valuable opportunities had come up. One person needed to go look at a field. One person needed to see his oxen. One person got married, right? And and the thing with these excuses is that none of them are bad. They're all good, productive things. But they all took priority over the banquet, See, Jesus Christ had arrived and he went to his people, the Jews, in Jerusalem, and he announced that the banquet was ready. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's time to come to the table. But his own people, the invited guests, rejected him and rejected the banquet. The very people who had memorized the scriptures and could piously and impressively say things like, Blessed is the man who will break bread in the kingdom of God. It was those very people who missed it. And so the master gets angry and he decides that instead of his invited guest enjoying the banquet, he will open up that banquet to the rest of the city and even the people outside of the city. 
It's almost as if Jesus is saying to the leaders around the table, you guys, the leaders, the religious leaders, you should have been first to come into my banquet and enjoy the kingdom of God. You should have been first to know that I was the Messiah, but you have prioritized other things. And so I'm sending my servants out to the rest of the city, to the rest of the Jews, so they can come into my banquet. And because there is still room, I am sending my servants outside of the city, to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, to the nations, all the way to the ends of the earth. And they are going to enjoy my banquet. Just because you have decided to prioritize other things doesn't mean that my banquet hall will be empty. And so when we take this parable and begin to then apply it to our current church context, the age of the church, we see that this is what Jesus commissions the church to do. This is what we've been talking about in the sermon series that we're in called Jesus and the Outsider. After Jesus went to the cross and he rises again from the dead, he goes to his disciples and he gives them a mission. That mission was to start the church and make disciples of all nations. Begin in Jerusalem, but go to the ends of the earth proclaiming the gospel and inviting people to come into my banquet. Go after the outsiders and bring them into the kingdom of God. And see, in our context today, we can see ourselves, we can kind of read ourselves, I believe, in multiple different roles in this parable. If you're a follower of Jesus, you were the one on the street, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, and you were invited into the banquet. Someone came to you and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with you, and they shared with you, listen, you are dead in your sins, and that sin has separated you from God and made it that you were not welcome in the kingdom of God. You were not an invited guest to the banquet. But God in his love and grace makes a way through Jesus, the Messiah, that you could be forgiven of your sin and invited in. Right? He sent Jesus to be that Messiah, to be the one who would cleanse us from our sins on the cross. And in the same way that he was resurrected from the dead into eternal life, into this banquet with the rich food and the well-aged wine and all of that stuff, we will have that same resurrection experience if we're followers of Jesus. In the same way that Jesus is resurrected, we will one day be resurrected into eternal life, into this banquet where there'll be no tears, there'll be no death. And if we would just trust in Jesus, if we would just believe that he is Lord, he is the Messiah, and if we accept this invitation, then we will be saved and welcomed in. That's who we are. We are the people on the streets that were invited in. But look, once we have been welcomed into this banquet, we also become one of those servants in the parable. We're given a mission because the banquet hall is not yet full. There's still room. More need to be brought in. We need to go further and further outside the city to the highways and the hedges to find people to bring them in. We have been given the gospel, the invitations to the kingdom to declare to the outsiders so that they may be brought to the banquet. 
And so we are the poor and the lame that have been invited to feast at the banquet and we have been sent out to bring more people in. You know, many times when people find out that I'm a pastor, you know, if I like sit in the barber chair and they're like, hey, what, what do you do? And I say I'm a pastor, normally all of a sudden it gets kind of weird. You know, or in the plane, if you're talking to someone, they find out you're a pastor, you can immediately see in their face, they just, they don't want to talk to you anymore. People get self-conscious around me. Um, they, they watch their mouth or they're very guarded about what they share with me or they'll apologize a lot if something slips out. Almost as if it's like, uh, because I'm a pastor, I cannot be in the presence of sin. I mean, how sad is it in, for so many in our culture, we just have this view of the church as these smug people who are righteous and cannot stand to be in the filth of the world. That's not the church. The church isn't filled with all the invited guests. The church is filled with those who were brought in from the streets. That's who you and I are. Those who at first did not belong, but because of Jesus, we now belong. Never be to be cast out to the street again, right? The church should be the most gracious place on planet Earth. And as we look into this parable, I want to zoom in even a little further. How does this parable then apply to us specifically here at Grace Hill? If all of us here who are followers of Jesus have been invited into the feast in this banquet and have also been sent out to bring more people into this banquet, what what does that practically look like here? Um, You know, there's a reason why... uh, Jesus, when when he was in that upper room with his disciples, just hours before he was arrested and tried and crucified. And at that moment, he gave his disciples instructions that when they gather together regularly as the church from this point forward, after Jesus dies on the cross and is resurrected, Jesus is going to commission them to start the church, to gather regularly for worship. And one of the things that Jesus instructs them to do is to break bread and drink wine. In our case, grape juice, right? There's incredible biblical imagery going on when we do this. When the church gathers together on Sunday mornings for worship, this isn't just some routine. This isn't like a Christian calling card. Right? This is the appetizer. This is a foreshadow. It's a picture. It's a taste of the feast that we will enjoy in God's kingdom for all of eternity after this life. Just like a group of loved ones gathers at a table to enjoy a meal, the church gathers together on Sundays. We do it so we can be together Encouraging one another, comforting one another, laughing together, helping each other press on in this life and keep believing even when it gets hard. We do it to worship our God who saved us through song. We sing to him. We pour out our hearts to him like we'll do for all of eternity. We humble ourselves underneath the reading of God's word saying, listen, I'm not the one who decides what truth is. God is the one who decides what truth is. He has told us that in his scriptures. So we humble ourselves under the reading of his word. And then we share a meal together. 
We break bread and it reminds us of how the body of Jesus was broken so that we would not have to face the judgment of God. And we drink wine and it reminds us of how we've been cleansed from our sins by the blood of Christ. And this meal reminds us of the feast we'll enjoy in heaven. In fact, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper just hours before he was arrested and crucified... He instructed his disciples, like we said, to gather regularly to do this, break bread, drink wine. And when Jesus was giving these instructions, he took a glass of wine and he raised it. Matthew 26, verse 29, and this is what he says. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There will be a day that we will share this meal with our Savior. And when we gather together as the church on Sundays, when we sing, when we hear preaching, when we come to the table, we are partaking of a taste of that feast that we'll enjoy for all of eternity. The gathering of the church together regularly to feast together is an essential, non-negotiable part of our joy in Jesus, right? We do not have a faith that thrives on a diet of podcasts and books and live streams and community service. None of those things are bad. But in the same way that I cannot nor do I want to live on a diet of protein bars, our faith cannot thrive without coming together and feasting together regularly, consistently, and expectantly. We need rich food full of marrow. We need meat and well-aged wine, to use the imagery of Isaiah 25. And so this morning, using this parable and, and the biblical imagery of the feast that we see all over our scriptures... What I have for us is I have, I have three challenging questions that I want all of us to examine ourselves with, okay? So three challenging questions for us. Here's, here's number one. Question number one is this. Do I prioritize feasting on Sundays? Do I value gathering with the church every single Sunday? And the way that we can test this in our lives is to look at our priorities, because we prioritize what we value. So if we were to examine our lives and ask the question, uh, what do I give priority to over gathering with the church regularly? What would we come up with? What weekend activities or circumstances would easily be prioritized over gathering with the church? See, not only can we see ourselves as the poor and blind who have been invited to the feast in this parable, and not only can we see ourselves as the servants who are going out to bring people in in this parable, I think we can also see ourselves as the ones making excuses. The ones who have found something that is more valuable than the feast. If you look at this parable and the examples of excuses made, none of them are bad. They're all good, productive things. Examples, getting married, purchasing property, nothing wrong with those things. But, but those things belong to this world. And when the church comes together for the taste of this feast that we'll enjoy for all of eternity, for a moment we are transported from the temporary kingdom of this world to the eternal kingdom of God where we truly belong, where our citizenship is. 
I mean, why is it considered radical, legalistic, to have a mindset that says, yeah, I'm traveling on the weekend, but I'm, I'm coming back on Saturday night to be with the church on Sunday. Of course, I want my kids to be involved in sports and other activities, but we're not going to prioritize that, to value that over being with our church. Yeah, it's been a busy and tiring weekend, but I'm still going to make time to be with the church, right? Of course, I would love to do that event or do this or that, but Sunday mornings is when I go to the feast with my church. And listen, I'm not saying there's not a good reason to miss a Sunday. Come on, you guys know me. You guys know I'm not a legalist, right? What I'm talking about, though, is our mindset. Asking the question, where does this rank on the list of things that I value? Do I really believe that this is essential to my joy in Jesus? But this question inevitably leads to a second question that we have to ask, and that's this. Question two is, do I expect Sundays to be a feast? This is why I love the imagery of the Messianic banquet in Isaiah 25, imagery of this rich food full of marrow and well-aged wine. I mean, have you ever been to a Brazilian steakhouse? You know, like Texas Day Brazil, Fogo de Chao, you know what I mean? If you ever can save up enough money to go eat there. Um... You know, they, you know, it's just like you have these little pods or these little, like, chips, and one side's green and one side's red, and as long as you have the green side up, they just keep filling your plate with meat. It's just all you can eat, right? How do you feel after that? I mean, you just, you feel full. You feel a little tired, right, because you're digesting all of that. You're definitely, like, good to go. Like, all right, I'm, I'm full for a while, all right, until, until I digest all of this and I'm ready for another meal? Do we expect Sundays to fill us up with faith and bring satisfaction to our souls for the week ahead? And I think we might tend to not have this expectation for Sunday morning because we partake of an unbalanced diet on Sunday mornings. In our culture, we have very much emphasized the singing and preaching as the main components of our meal together on Sundays. And those are essential components that we have to have in our meal, absolutely. But the part I think we tend to not value as much is the being together part. You know, sometimes I think you can measure the health of a church not by how many people are in the service, but how many people come early to see one another and stay late to encourage one another. You know, it's interesting how many times you you hear people say, man, we do live in a busy culture. It's hard to find times to get together, to see one another, to really get to know people in the church. But the thing is, is we're together every single week on Sundays. You know, when you invite your friends and family over for for a meal at your house, you know, uh, what do you do? You invite them over, you tell them to come over before the meal's ready, and you have drinks and appetizers. You finally sit down for the main course, and then you, you brew some coffee, you get some dessert, you play games, and you stay and you talk until it's too late. See, we've been taught that church is good for us because you're supposed to learn a lot in the sermon. And I sure hope you learn a lot in the sermon. That's part of it. But... Church is good for us because we need to feast with one another over and over again. 
encouraging one another, coming when we're on the mountaintop, coming when we're in the valley, coming in the mundaneness of life, reading God's word together, singing together, breaking bread, drinking wine, rehearsing the truth of the gospel. And it is the before and after, I think, the actual worship service where a lot of that happens. Faithfully prioritizing this in your life and in your family's life over the long haul, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday will do more for your joy in Christ than any one spiritually euphoric experience. We've become convinced that what best feeds our soul is a spiritually high moment, and those are good, but not the consistent diet of just being with one another. Here's the third question. Do I invite people to the feast with me? Now, obviously, if feasting together is not a high priority, and if I don't really expect Sundays to be a feast, then what is compelling about what we're doing that we would want to invite others to join? Right? What is compelling about what we're doing that they would want to come join? Right? We all have been called to feast together and invite outsiders to join us for the feast. And I'm convinced that the quality and the joy of this regular feast is so important to the effectiveness of our mission here in Northern Virginia. Right? Our world is longing for sustenance that will feed the soul. And we gather together every Sunday to partake of that very sustenance. And we've been sent by our Lord to the streets, to invite people in to taste it as well. And so, Grace Hill, here's, here's my exhortation to all of us, is let's feast well together on Sundays. Let's prioritize being together on Sundays. Let's have a culture here on Sunday mornings that we're excited to invite outsiders into. But that takes weekly faithfulness on our parts to come here on Sundays expecting a feast. And so if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I want, I want to invite you to come to the table. I'm going to pray for us in just a second. But I want to invite you to come forward, and, and I want you to take some bread that represents the body of Christ, the broken body of Christ, and take the cup that represents the blood of Christ. And what I want you to do is I just want you to feast on the gospel. I just want you to have a moment where just in the quiet of your heart, you just think of, man, I was the poor beggar on the street and I was invited into God's kingdom because of what Christ has done for me through the, his broken body and his shed blood on the cross. And I just want that to be a moment of encouraging your soul. Just like that song we sung earlier, you are who he says you are. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm gonna ask you not to come forward to partake because this is something that we do to kind of declare and to encourage our souls in what we believe about Jesus. And so if you don't believe it, uh, it doesn't make sense for you to come forward, but I would love for you to sit in your seat and think upon what is this gospel. And if you have questions about that, we'd love to be able to talk to you. But if you know Jesus, come forward, feast on the gospel, feast on the truth that no matter how this past week went for you, 
No matter how frustrated you got with people or how lazy you were or what you did in secret or if you were happy or depressed this week, if you were feeling self-conscious, anxious, out of control, or just bored, whatever it was this week, you have a seat at the table in God's kingdom because of what Christ has done for you. And you are invited to this table. So I encourage you, remember the death of Christ as we've been commanded to do. Let your soul be filled to satisfaction and be encouraged this morning in the gospel. Because this table cries out that you are loved, you are wanted in God's kingdom, and you are valued. So let me pray for us, and then I'll invite you to come forward. Father, this morning, I pray that our time together would be just a reminder, a taste, Lord, of the kingdom and the feast that we will experience for all of eternity. Lord, I pray that it would be encouraging to every person in this room who has called upon the name of Jesus that they are not just invited to this table, that they are wanted and desired. That no matter what right now is causing guilt and shame to constrain their heart, that it hasn't constrained you or caused you to revoke their invitation. It hasn't caused you to regret giving them a seat at the table. So Lord, I pray for those in the room that need to be encouraged this morning in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Lord, your spirit would encourage their hearts right now that they are loved and that Jesus Christ went to a cross so that you, they could be your child for all of eternity. Lord, I pray that as we sing songs to you, as we gather and fellowship together afterwards, that, Lord, this would just be a moment of encouraging us in the gospel. And, Lord, help us to wait faithfully for your coming so that, Lord, we can taste of this feast, this messianic banquet for all of eternity. We love you, Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.